You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This episode of the Comedian's Comedian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and then enter the offer code COMEDY at the checkout. A better web starts with your website. This is a podcast from (laughs) comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Welcome to the show, I'm Stuart Goldsmith, and today I'm talking to a wonderful comedian, a very unusual comic, and someone to whom I really relate in terms of his doubts, if not his talent. This is the brilliant Noel James. I'm currently uh, filming a sitcom, again, in Welsh language for the uh, Welsh language television channel. And it's a sitcom which involves writing, it involves performing, and similar to Curb Your Enthusiasm, a lot of the the performances are largely ad-libbed with me and three other performers... You may have heard of some of them, Frank Hannibal and Rodri Reese. I'm sure you've heard yes, of them. So we're, yeah. we're all doing that, and it's it's going to take us up at least to the end of July. And last week we performed a a gig. It was with members of the public in the audience. It was filmed, so it was actually the sitcom. But at the same time, we were doing a proper gig to an audience. Okay. okay. And at the end of the gig, uh I, I I'm not sure if I should reveal this, but I mean it doesn't really matter because uh, I was electrocuted by the microphone. I mean I was okay, I was okay. acting, sure. but I collapsed, and the audience didn't know this was going to happen. Oh, okay, so okay. apparently there is a a, f- a few comedians out there have seen photographs. I don't know where they've seen the photographs, but somebody's twittered them or Facebooked them or something, and it looked quite serious that I and I didn't. I see. Hence, yeah. hence the concern yes, there. I yes, understand. Okay. Yes. But then, metaphorically speaking, if you look, like I said, at the last few years where I, you know, back in 2004, I think, after I did an Edinburgh show in... I mean, I did an Edinburgh show in 2007, but in those interim years, I I didn't do that many 
uh, live comedy gigs, certainly not in England. Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, I've seen things, blogs by various comedians refer to me. You know, Gavin Webster, who I really like, said something about all the wordplay comedians that are mm. around. And, and and by the way, what happened to uh, Noel James, who was uh, quite a good wordplay comedian. You know, the now forgotten Noel James, I believe, was what he wrote. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, there is that. And I think in what we call show business, it's quite obvious that you have to keep, you know, it doesn't matter how, how well-known or how successful you think you are. If you want a profile, you have to keep hassling and you have to keep working, uh, uh, grabbing people's attention. And um, perhaps I haven't done that enough. Let's, let's leave that to one side for now and go into... Because obviously I want to talk about your writing and I want to get into the nitty-gritty of how you write. Okay. So before we get to that, I just how would you, for, an act that, for, a, for a, a listener who doesn't know you, Yes. You say a wordplay comedian. Just could you sort of? I know, I know it's it's always a horrible question to be asked, but what is your? What, how would you describe yourself to someone in New Zealand who's never seen you before? <clears throat> Good eye. <laughs> I could see you thinking on that, and I thought there was no need to give an example of New Zealand there. But go on. What? So, well, what, what's your act? An interesting point that the uh, the kiwi fruit is the only flightless fruit. Uh, that's. Uh, <laughs> From New Zealand. I mean, if I were doing a gig in New Zealand, I may start with that joke. Gotcha. Um, it is a joke which contains wordplay, which, you know, um, I, I, I would say that um, I would like to be many things when I'm on stage, but I have to settle for a couple of things you know, okay. the reality is that we all have to settle for what we've got and what is physically possible to bring bring across to the audience. I mean, inside me, I am bursting with ideas and passions and, and all sorts of things that I'd like to put into reality. And I once read uh, a quote about the definition of genius, and I can't remember who wrote it, but he said, to me, the definition of genius is being able to put into the real world, into reality, the ideas you have in your mind. And, and that is actually much harder for some of us than others, it seems. I mean, I would love to make a film. I would love to write stuff. And if, But as it is, I do gigs. I do live gigs. So I'm on stage and I think my stuff is intelligent. I think I project um, a, a spirit of some kind, a happy-go-lucky, likeable spirit, a man who likes to have fun with the comedy. I like to... You know, if people, I, I don't really, I, I like, I like the underdogs in life. I like Laurel and Hardy. You know, I like Monty Python. I like eccentricity. I don't really observe things. I don't really tend to go on about real life situations and relationships and things that happen to me on the train or in the post office. And I don't talk about political events and situations in the world and yet I do refer to these things from time to time and inside me I'm interested in these things and I would love to have conversations about these things but for some reason I have a for want of a better word a persona you know some people think it's he does clever jokes some people think he does daft jokes silly jokes and perhaps that's the end of that description. Um, <laughs> okay, so you do in a in a set, you will do predominantly what I would think of as one-liners. 
Would you? Would you agree with that? Uh, I would. I would uh, agree with that. To partly agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that the 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 jokes I do, I over time evolve them so they 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 flow into another joke. Which, for example, a series of jokes that I came up with recently meld together. So my friends gone to Tibet to study Buddhism. And the first thing they taught him was how to levitate. They have to teach him that out there because that's the only way they can get a signal on the mobile phone. <laughs> now, Tibet, of course, is the roof of the world, so I do not intend to slate it. But they've also said he must not send photographs. He cannot email me photographs of the Himalayas, which is really annoying. He says he can't because Buddhists don't believe in attachments. <laughs> That is a series of... There's three jokes. Yeah. It's plus three one-liners. The Tibet one is a one-liner, which mm. I can imagine somebody like Steve Wright doing, you mm -hmm. know, like, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a small world, but I wouldn't like to paint it. Yes, know? yes. So, but, you know, I fit them, fit them together, and um, they don't... I'm not saying they, they form a completely seamless passage, but I guess um, that... Uh, yeah, I guess uh, it's uh, it's it's flowing uh, short routines made up of one-liners and sometimes just one-liners. Are you doing now the same sorts of jokes as you were when you first started? Um, yes, more or less. But when I first started, I I had no idea how to write a joke uh, officially according to any any standard. I knew I could write funny things. I had an instinct. When I was in school, I was, you know, writing sketches and things for the, the school shows. I went to university and did physics for three years. I I don't believe I had enough guidance in school. I don't believe, you know, I'd been, I would have been happier doing French or languages or something. I did do an O-level in drama, and that's the only O-level I failed. Uh... Anyway, enough about the bitterness of school and things, because university gets even more bitter. In the final year of university, and I'm not saying this is a joke, Ren, this is absolutely true, uh, my mother, I was 20 years old, my mother passed away when I was in the final year of university, okay? It was an extremely, uh, ex it was a very unexpected thing, it was an extremely shocking incident in my life, you know, there's nothing that ever has come close to it. And... While I didn't really enjoy physics in university, I could do it. I was doing it. I was mm. heading for a secure future, perhaps working in some, you know, the aerospace industry or whatever. And then in the final year, this happened. And it really physically affected my mind. Not only did it affect the relationship I had with my father and my brother, and that is my family. You know, it was a lot, there was a distance between us suddenly because the undermining and underlining idea that if one of your parents is now no longer here, well, what was the point of all this university? What was the point of all this going? You know, because you do it to make them proud, don't you, to a large mm. extent. But also just a physical shake-up of my, my mind, my brain. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus on anything. But while I'd been in university, I'd had one friend who I'd made, and he was studying English, and he was from Surrey, and, you know, for me from South Wales, I went to Manchester University. It was, it was an unexpected uh, cultural change. And I was, 
I didn't realise this. I wasn't very good with, you know, with people. I wasn't very sociable. I didn't realise while I was in school and while I was growing up in this part of Wales how, you know, how shy... Not, not shy, but how just inept I was at how to make friends and stuff like that. So... Gradually, I made one friend at university, and he was from a completely different background to me. He was from Surrey. He was studying English, and we had this um, this this mutual interest in 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 writing. We we just sort of one day we clicked. Uh, I won't go into detail, but we clicked. We started writing funny poetry. Funny. Okay. We thought it was funny. We called it pie poetry, you know. And um, why why was it pie poetry? By merit raised, subsequent I established and bitter bitter in the Cairngorms, Smithfield I muse. Let us be occupied with the low life of pitterbread. Heckle heckle. I can't remember the rest, but that was um, <laughs> the sort of thing we were doing. Some of it had obvious jokes in there and some of it was just oh we liked it we were being indulgent you know? I have to say when you said funny poetry I had no mm. idea it was going to sound so poetic do you know what I mean that sounds oh, really yeah. it sounds like kind yeah. of uh, uh, Joycean do you know what I mean or uh, um, yeah. what's his face you know um, Dylan Thomas that was it, it felt yeah. actually poetic I, normally yeah. you hear a funny poem and it's a limerick or whatever but that's uh, a very unusual thing uh, to happen I think uh, I mean he obviously studying English Mike knew a lot more of the references, certainly Joyce and things in there, we came up with terminology for the type of lines. For example, a clinker would be a line that we just insert suddenly. It would be, it would, it would be a sharp contrast to the line in, before it. You know, we had all sorts of terminology. And this was going on throughout the, the last two years of university. And then through him, I met drama students. And, and from them, I heard about the, the comedy circuit that was in, in London. This would be in the late 80s. And I'd heard about how drama students were getting equity cards from doing gigs on the comedy circuit. So then I kept that at the back of my mind. And as I say, even since school, I'd always been interested. I'd always followed lots of comedy on television. In the 70s growing up, there were so many sitcoms and so many different diverse types of comedy. And it was all pretty good quality. I mean, looking back now, maybe some of it's dated. But at the time, you think, you know, there's all these stand-up comedians on television. There's Monty Python starting up. My brother, who was seven years older than me, tuned me on to the early Monty Python. Spike Milligan shows. Brilliant stuff, you know. So I had all that. Then something happened. When I went to university, I kind of... I'm not sure if it was something like ME or some weird thing happened to me. As I say, it was a, it was a, um, quite uh, traumatic just going to university, to Manchester and leaving home. And then at the end, uh, with my mother dying, uh, uh, just a personality change, just a complete change came over me. And one thing emerged from that, and that was instead of just going on to do a safe job using my physics qualification... I would forget about it for now and I would do something that I was genuinely passionate about or genuinely interested in pursuing, which was the comedy. Uh, my brother was already living in London and he still does. So I had somewhere I could kind of lodge or live temporarily when I got there. I got a job doing a temp job for British Telecom and I, I started looking up in Time Out magazine. I, had, I knew nothing about the comedy circuit or the comedy scene. But my friend Mike and I, he helped me work on a, a 10 minutes. Well, when I phoned the first club, we went, we went along to see comedy. I remember, uh, I mean, um, okay, so there was, so to finish the degree, I got a 2-2. I went to America for three months to work on a kids' camp. 
looking back, I wish I'd gone back to America, but I came back to London. My father and I were, he was he was a changed man as well because his wife had died and he didn't have the same warmth as he used to, at least I didn't think he did, and it was all a bit funny and weird. And I went to London, looked up time. We went to see a cabaret in the Meccano Club, which I think is still going mm-hmm. in Islington, and that was the first time I'd ever seen uh, that type of setting for a live comedy show and there was more cabaret at the end of the 80s so you had comedians on and you had people like Younger and Parker who were a jazz music duo they would be headlining so okay. so that's so it was so around comedians would be sort of in support of a, a more classical uh, cabaret act Often, not necessarily okay. all the time. You might have Younger and Parker on the same bill, not necessarily headlining, but mm. you'd have, certainly you'd have more diversity. You'd have, you had a lot of good comedians, deadpan people, comedians who who are no longer around anymore. Johnny Immaterial was a brilliant guitarist and songwriter okay. and really funny and dry, a lot of dry comedians. You had a guy called Jez Prince, who was a very deadpan, dry comedian. You had... You know, you had people... You had Mark Thomas and Kevin Day would show up and Adrena Durrell, Australian comedian. You had all these people. And um, I remember the compere was a lady called Maria Callas, not the opera singer, but uh, she went on to do a show with uh, Graham... What's his name? Norton. Yeah, she went on to do Wholesome Show, but Graham Norton's gone on to bigger things. So you had these... Maria Callas was a very... um, interesting subtle comedian you had a lot of in especially you know because I, I i went to this isling club is islington islington club more than once the mccarno club to watch comedy to see what it was like not that i had never been to live comedy before when i was a kid i saw frank frankie howard ken dodd you know and so um but this was the the whole cabaret alternative scene there was a lot more politics as well uh which you know when the 90s came on you know that the thing changed a bit more and it was I think the prospect of big money was suddenly realized by various people I don't know what happened but it all developed and then so after going to see comedy in the McCann club then I looked in time out magazine to find the telephone numbers for these clubs to see how do you go about getting a booking and indeed the McCann club six months later having been there as a spectator i did my first open open mic and i then started to realize and learn how it how the system worked so i would do 10 minutes for no money that's when me and mike got together we had three or four months before the actual booking was to to take place so we 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 formed or i wrote 10 minutes and he contributed and he acted as a soundboard 10 minutes of and like i say how do i write a joke so my first fully formed joke which was in my first set i would regard as this joke and it is this it is uh uh when i was born my mother gave birth to me underwater um she didn't do this to give me a less traumatic easier entrance into the world it was more to do with the fact that my mother was a hammerhead shark (laughs) and there was things like that there was references to not many references to 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 whales oh i know what you're thinking i i shag i shag sheep but that's not true i took one to the restaurant once i took one to the cinema you know there was just innocent remarks like that i mean i i i had no idea what audiences were like I thought they'd be nice audiences like the McCarna club in Islington are but as i did more and more open mics 
I realised, especially my fifth open mic was in the Tunnel Club, which was run by the legendary Malcolm Hardy. And then I was shaking for two weeks when I did that one because I didn't realise audiences were were like that. You, you were know? shaking for two weeks after yeah, doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it was what what was yeah, so traumatic yeah, about it? it was it like yeah, people heckling you? Was yeah. it? In them days, for, and even now to some extent, but for for many years, if I had a bad experience, uh, or yeah. If I was shaking for a, I mean, I would be affected for weeks after a bad gig. And when I say bad gig, if I had a death, when, you, when you're starting out and you die, you don't know what's happened because you've got no performance skills. You don't know enough to bring the audience around. You don't understand why they've suddenly switched off and don't like you. Um, by the way, when I first started, it is true that I painted myself blue. I painted my face and my hands blue. And this was an idea I had. Again, it was an idea in the... I just thought it would be funny, you know, and I knew that um, perhaps from watching various acts in the Meccano Club that there was room for doing something yes. outlandish. And my opening line was, I'm not colour prejudiced, but I fucking hate blue people. <laughs> you know, that's what they used to say to me when I was a kid. Too long in a womb, they said, and I suppose four years is pushing it. <laughs> and then I did some joke about womb with a view, and then I did... You know, my mother, she had a phantom pregnancy, so she wasn't bothered when she gave birth to a ghoul. There was a lot of melancholic, sad stuff in there with no actual... It wasn't structured jokes, a lot of it. It was like, I had a certain, you know... A sort of thing that was influenced by the, the poetry I'd been writing with Mike. Also, I'd had this idea for a, a story, a novel, which was probably influenced by that novel called um, The Tin Drum, which was made into yeah. a film... It's like an epic thing about this little boy. Is he, a, is he a fully grown man who's just small? And he plays a tin drum and there's lots of weird, surreal stuff. I've always been into those... I've always been into films and I always love those epic stories where certain things come into it that shouldn't quite be there. It's surreal imagery. You know, for example, in Game of Thrones where you have the, the dragons come into it. You think they shouldn't quite be there. They don't fit. So I had this idea of a boy who was born with blue skin... And he was also, while he was in the womb, he was sending out telepathic signals and the FBI picked up on it and they weren't sure if they, the mother was trying to assassinate somebody or they realised it. That's like kind of Frank Herbert or Stephen King territory. So then when you look at the, the, the shark joke, it's almost like a short story with a twist mm. in the tail compressed mm. into a five-second joke. Yes. You know, that's, yes. That, so my idea of jokes initially was coming from short stories, twist-in-the-tail type of thing. So this is Noel. I hope I've made the right decisions in editing this show. We talked for a good long while, but I've tried to keep the bits that were most Noelish and cut out a good bit of me banging on. I've got a very good friend in Melbourne called Hamish who said to me some years ago, uh, he said, oh, I remember, Stu, you, uh, you like to give yourself a hard time, eh? And uh, and I do. That made me laugh because I do like to give myself a, a hard time and I don't really know why. I suspect Noel James might be the same. I think Noel gives himself a hard time. Um, you can hear for yourself uh, in this interview how ruminative he is. I'm sure you can hear the melancholy behind some of what he's saying. And um, obviously, as he describes uh, the trauma of losing his mother and how that propelled him into comedy, um, there's definitely... There's definitely a, a melancholy there behind what he's saying. And I, I can certainly identify with some of the creative and work-related doubts that he describes. 
I think Noel's a genius. I always enjoy watching him, and I think he brings something genuinely unique to the stage. Um, I'm really pleased he was so candid in this. Above all, though, I would urge you, if you're enjoying this, uh, I would urge you to watch Noel live and experience him for yourself, because he does bring something utterly special to comedy. So, um, yes, so anyway, this is Noel. Before we get back to the interview, a couple of bits and bobs. Uh, Some Edinburgh recommendations now. These are basically... I sort of suddenly thought I, I should. I know a lot of you've been emailing me and saying who should I go and see this year. Um, well, I say a lot of you, some of you, en- enough that I haven't got around to answering that I feel guilty. Um, these are some recommendations of people I will definitely be seeing, um, and some of them are my friends. I should say, a full disclosure, uh, all of them uh, to some extent are my friends. Um, but I also will definitely be going to see these shows because I think they're brilliant, and I think you should too. Joseph Morpurgo, his show last year absolutely knocked me for six. I thought he was great. I came in in the last two minutes of a preview of his at uh, ARG Com Fest, and uh, I can't wait to I can't wait to see him. Lloyd Langford is always absolutely brilliant. Uh, Danny McLaughlin at the Tron. I really man, I saw Danny do some stuff. I hope is in this show about um, uh, about his dad being laid off, told through the metaphor of. Freddo Frogs. That bit alone, I hope that's in the show, I can't guarantee it is obviously, but I think Danny's fantastic and that bit absolutely blew me away. Finn Taylor I'll definitely be going to see. I think, does this count as Finn's first year? Maybe he's out there to claw himself a a nomination, he's certainly worthy of one. Uh, Rachel Paris, absolutely brilliant last year, looking forward to seeing her again. It's Pete Dobbins' first year, Uh, Pete's a friend of the show and uh, a long-term uh, confidant of mine. He's responsible for a lot of uh, the way this show works. Is that, That's come out of meetings with Pete. Uh, and he's doing his first hour, which is just... It's exactly what I expect from him, and yet none of it I expected at all. Um, so go along. He's going to be talking about... Uh, the future of food, among other things. I don't want to tell you too much about it, but he's sort of like, if you like reading Boing Boing Net, if you like um, if you like uh, far-ranging visions of the future, uh, explained to you with a lot of enthusiasm and jokes. Go and see Pete Dobbing. The show is called Dobbing. That's on uh, one of the free fringes. I forget which at the moment. Uh, I worked with Ed Gamble over the weekend at Llama Tree Festival, and thanks if you came and saw me at Llama. I had a tremendous time. Um, Ed Gamble, though, again, did some brilliant... He was comparing, but he managed to wedge in some personal storytelling stuff that uh, that I thought was terrific. So I'll certainly be seeing Ed's show. Uh, Joe Caulfield, I worked with just a couple of weeks ago, and she's up there with another sparkling hour, I'm sure. Uh, and I'll definitely be seeing uh, Eleanor Tiernan. I, I saw her at Glastonbury, but I missed her set. Uh, I can't wait to see her hour. Eleanor Tiernan, brilliant, brilliant Irish comic. Um, so that's all of that. And uh, going, I mean, God, I've just thought I've started looking through the guide, trying to circle things. I said to myself, I'm not going to drive myself mental this year seeing five shows a day, but it's so difficult. There's so much on. Um, Good luck to anyone heading up there. Um, A request from a listener, comic and promoter, Nigel Lovell. Um, He asked, would it be possible for me to ask anyone else who's ever got a one star review um, and who's going to be in Edinburgh? Uh, This is comics. Uh, (laughs) I don't think you can get one star reviews of people. Perhaps you can. Uh, Please get in touch with Nigel um, via the Facebook page, the the Comedians Comedian Facebook page. Uh, He's on there. You can definitely find him. He spells Nigel N-I-G. And uh, if you've got a one star review and you're going to be in Edinburgh, please give him a shout. He's doing, uh, I think it's called The Worst Show at the Fringe or The Worst Show in Town or something. Uh, I'm going to be doing that gig. It's basically a compilation show where obviously the the, uh, 
The link is that everyone has at one point or another had a one-star review. Uh, he tells me I'm eligible because show me the funny got a one-star review on IMDb off a punter. Uh, and with those kind of credentials, I'm sure it's going to be a brilliant show. It's going to be wonderful or a car crash or both. Certainly worth seeing. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and now a word from today's sponsor. This episode of the Comedians Comedian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop. Uh, I just threw in that extra and there because I think that's written amusingly. Um, they're easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs, and 24-7 customer support teams. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, where are they based? I'm telling you now, they're based in New York and Dublin. And uh, that means you can create a beautifully designed website for as little as £5 a month. Only a fiver a month. And they are. I mean, they're genuinely beautiful. I wouldn't be advertising them if I hadn't checked them out. And they do look awesome. That includes a free domain name when you sign up for a year. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, please make sure to use the offer code COMEDY to get 10% off and uh, to show your support, in inverted commas. That means they give me some cash for the comedian's comedian. No credit card is required. You can start building your website today. That's all from that. Let me know how you feel about the ads. Uh, those are the last two. We sort of booked those two in. Um, I'd be interested to get some feedback from you as to whether I do more or whether they make you sick with rage. Uh, one person in particular is very angry about them. Everyone else has been sort of quite positive, but I'm eager to canvas your opinions. Let me know as well who you're going to go see this fringe. You can do that by tweeting at ComComPod or emailing me info at comedianscomedian.com. Holy shit, I didn't even advertise my own show. You all know about it already. Extra Life, I'm so excited about it. I've got two previews left and I've never been more ready or excited for a festival. Um, it's called Extra Life. It's on at seven o'clock at the uh, Pleasance Courtyard in the attic. Wear shorts. It's going to be baking hot even on cold days. And I don't know if I've really told you much about the show, but it's basically all about how I want to have kids, but am terrified of that. And it will also, it's very likely to complain, uh, to complain, it's very likely to contain uh, two of my brilliant girlfriend's impressions. Uh, she does impressions of inanimate objects, and I've been occasionally wedging them into the show. Fully credited, of course. Um, they are, in my opinion, they're the best bits. So come along and see that seven o'clock every night during the Fringe. Um, and if you're not going to be there, but you know people who are going to be there, please direct them, send them my way. Also, of course, uh, 11 o'clock on the 10th, and then the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th of August, uh, we're doing some live com-coms. We've got already booked up Sam Simmons, Bridget Christie. Uh, we've got Josie Long and a brilliant Phil Kay as well. They're all brilliant, of course. Um, and uh, one more mystery guest. Oh, it's such a mystery. Why is it a mystery, Stuart? Well, it's because they're not booked yet, but uh, they're definitely going to be great. So um, get in touch and uh, come and see those. They're on at 11 o'clock at Bob and Misbehaves Bookshop on uh, Holyrood. I'm going to say road. Google it, you can find it. That's everything. Let's get back to Mr. Noel James. I mean, what we're talking about here, in my mind, is we're talking about psychology. We're talking about feelings and emotions inside us. I mean, you yourself have just said that the audience sees you as one thing, but inside you feel like a lot more, you have a lot more to offer. And you only have to think about comedians you've met on the comedy circuit who are one thing off stage, presumably themselves, if you know them, even to a small extent, they talk to you, 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 you do gigs with them, you get to know them. And, and, and then a lot of those comedians, when they go on stage, their act, for want of a better word, what they do on stage, is, is a completely different side. It's not nothing like what they're like off stage. And sometimes it's a nice surprise if you've never seen them before. And, and, but you've known them 
to talk to. And sometimes it's, in my mind, I, I mean, I've seen a couple of comedians where I've thought, no, it's a shame. I wish they did, I wish they reflected more of what they were like off stage. Now, I know, uh, I, I once heard somewhere that, whether this is true or not, that Mark Thomas said that he doesn't like comedians who do, uh, in inverted commas, an act, right? Mm. So, so my problem, amongst many others, is I think too much, or I think a lot about things, and I can never end up anymore with a conclusion. Because, because if you think about the definitions of words a lot, and then you think of what a comedian does, and what I do in comedy is, I'm messing around with words all the time. My my brain is like just, it's just uh, a, a a series of channels, you know, like those shoots in the old postal systems where you put things yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, that's what's going on in my brain. First of all, when I'm writing material and when I'm performing it, especially if I'm also trying to get a laugh spontaneously about ad-libbing something in the middle of a, a joke. And then when I'm off stage and I'm quietly contemplating comedy, and I do read about comedy, I do collect books about it. You know, I've got these things here. I mean, there's a book here, Inside Jokes, Using Humour to Reverse Engineer the Mind by a philosopher, Daniel Dennett. Now, okay. I haven't even started this yet, okay. and, I, and I really do not look forward to reading that. Because, I, <laughs> okay. because a philosopher who's going to write about what jokes are... You know, you and I probably more, know more in our little thumb than Daniel Dennett or even Freud knew about comedy. Sure. You know? And then you've got this other... This, the Mirror of Laughter, which is probably a bit more accessible. And you get people who try and write, write books. Entirely, entirely, they're trying to ascertain why jokes work, you know... So I'm, I never try to go there, but then you come back to simple definitions like what is an act, you know, what is an act? Am I doing an act when I'm on stage? Well, if that's not my real-life persona that I'm doing on stage, then it must be an act. So I think it's possible to think too much about comedy and to um, rather than just get on with it because I think there's a group of people, and I'm fortunate, I, and you are, I consider myself fortunate to be... I, I know we, we have a, an instinct whether we're funny or not, right? And in that sense, we have an advantage over so many people who do open mics and perhaps never get any further. And we also have an advantage over many people who do, in fact, get material success uh, in, in the world of comedy. And for the life of me, I do not know why, right? But there are reasons why people get success in comedy besides being funny on stage, okay? I'm sure that those reasons involve the ability to schmooze, the ability to talk to the right people, etc., etc., or just to be presentable, you know. And <laughs> he says, whilst wiping the shit from his face, right? So I am an outsider. On, we're all outsiders to some degree. You've, you've said that, you know, you feel you have a lot more to offer than the, the audience perceives. Perception, now that's a big word in comedy, you know. In fact, I mean, I've read a lot by a guy called Colin Wilson, who's still alive. He often gets relegated as a as a minor writer because he writes a lot about the occult and subjects that nobody else wants to deal with. But he, he was one of the original angry young men in the late 50s because he wrote a book called The Outsider. And The Outsider was a critique of what he saw as people throughout history who've never quite been able to be part of the system because of certain... Uh, certain um, 
traits that they had or things that they said that uh, they would never be allowed or admitted into. into. But then you have to look at, well, what is that norm? Mm. What is that majority? Mm. What is that society? I mean, I'm not a particularly social person. And then if you read books and newspapers and watch television, it's quite intimidating because you're led to believe that as a human being, you have to be social. But then if you look at primates, and we are a primate, orangutans are solitary primates. So therefore, you think, well, why can't you be solitary? What's wrong with that? And of course... There's, there's thousands, there's millions of people in the world who are solitary, but that's never, that's never mentioned. You know, there's a, certain, um, there's a certain voice, you know, and I think someone like Bill Hicks was a very good uh, observer and commentator on this. He said something that what you need when you, watch, when you watch all the channels of rubbish on television, you know, the, the, what the public are craving for is, is one voice of truth. And but what that truth is doesn't... It, it, it's a truth which I think, you know, it's like if you're all... Oh, God, this is... You know, you're an outsider because you're trying to be honest to yourself, OK? And that's probably, at the end of the day, a, a thing to be more proud of than... than saying things... Uh, which, um, you know, you know, there, 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 there's, no, there's nothing wrong with, with different types of comedy. You know, you can have comedians who basically will themselves say, well, I'm just talking shit and I'm getting paid for it, you know, and, and, and that's fine. But, I mean, um, um, I don't know if I'm an outsider. I'm certainly, I'm indoors at the moment. <laughs> I know people off stage would use the word odd about me. And I it kind of, I'm not saying it offends me, but what I don't like, I mean, when audiences do it, that's different. Because audiences, you are doing a job, you have to detach yourself and not take things personally. You know, but I mean, uh, I think uh, uh, that um, the word shame always uh, strikes me as, a, it's an interesting concept, shame, because... Um, because um, what I've read about it is you, you, when you have it, you don't feel it. It's like a blanket thing that, that can... If you okay. have it too much in your life, it can stifle you. And I think, you know, in my upbringing, you know, with, uh, you know, with my parents, my parents and I were living in a house after my brother moved to London, the three of us, and um, they often would... Uh, as I grew older, into my teens, I started realising that they'd have rows from time to time and they wouldn't speak, you know, for, for a week or so. And, uh, cool. and I think stuff like that, you know, comes into, into the rest of your life and the fact that the rest of my life has been spent. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Doing comedy, I think comedy was, was one of the, the one thing I thought I could do this and... I'm not going to feel ashamed for doing it, you know. And it's funny how people will come up to you after a gig and say, that's the hardest job in the world. You, mu- you must be so confident as a mm. person. And it really couldn't be further from the truth because I cannot really throw myself into any other activity in life, you know. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not that I couldn't do certain things like, you know, uh, go out dancing or... or take up archery or or become a uh, a counselor or something it's just that um, I'm scared of doing a lot of things you know I'm and and so I'm not confident and I think confidence is a a magical quality that some people are lucky they have it nurtured in them when they're younger and some people work out how to achieve it when they're older themselves whether it's by using you know you know uh, esoteric methods like uh, yoga, uh, meditation, or just education and traveling, and I think uh, there's something uh, that uh, people people shouldn't take for granted the good qualities they have because if if it's true that a lot of these things are determined by genes, then uh, it's like a curse. Then, isn't it? You can't. How the hell are you supposed to beat the genes? Do you know what I mean? Can we, can we just stay with this idea of fear for the moment? Because I think that's very interesting what you said, that people, and people say that a lot, I'm sure, to all comics, oh, it's the, you're so brave. And, but what you just said there is, to you, it feels... Sorry, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems that what you're saying is you, you find real life, other things, archery, dancing, those other things you mentioned, yeah. you feel those are more scary than going on stage and doing a gig. Do you think, is that, is that, have I got the right of the stick there? Yeah. What is it about those things that scares you? Uh, because I, uh, I, I, I think this is a fascinating subject because any of us that get up there and stand in front of the gaze of potentially hundreds of people, thousands yeah. of people, some, some yeah. but I don't only do gigs to gays, Stuart. I do gigs to heterosexual <laughs> people as well, okay? So let's get that straight, okay? Um, Look, it's that's what I'm saying. Am I, am I, you know, am I taking this into an analytical territory that is not worthy of of the lightness of this conversation? No, because you know? this is, there's a hundred light podcasts out there, and this is a deep conversation. Okay, this is, so I, I'm interested in knowing because I and I, I initially started doing this because I struggle tremendously with comedy. Why I'm doing it? How I'm doing mm. it? God, what if I'm doing it wrong? What if I've always been doing it wrong? I've got a lot of negative voices yeah. that I silence yeah. through yeah. doing this yeah. and asking yeah. other people. So this is this is yeah. exactly what what I want to. Okay, know. well, I think it's it's possible that when you do comedy, right? When you do comedy, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you've just done a gig. It means you've committed your life to. You've committed 
at least, you know, some people have said, well, I'll do a run of five years. And what they know that what that means is, I mean, I have no beef with so-called hobbyist comedians. I think anybody who can go on stage, if they have something, they express it and people laugh, fair play to them. However, if you decide to do comedy full time, you know that you've got to give up whatever job you have, right? And then you throw yourself in, in, into it. Okay, now that means, to me anyway, what happens and has happened is it's a, a state of mind. If you can deal with that state of mind, that's great. But I think when you look at all the comedians who, since we've been doing comedy, you will notice people deal with it in various ways. Some comedians have gone a bit loopy and stopped doing it. I'm not going to name anybody, but there's certainly people I could name. Some people have hit the bottle. You know, they. some people at the same time embrace fully the professionalism, the business side of it. They shine, they become Edinburgh stars, they become TV personalities all through comedy and all through using the stand-up comedy circuit as a stepping stone. If um, if you enter into that state of mind, when I entered into it, so it's not just doing a gig, it's not just a moment, it's not just writing a joke, it is a life a life decision. Totally. And, yeah. and so we're in it now as we speak, right? So as you just said, uh, likewise, I'm full of doubts. I'm always full of doubts. I'm always thinking, what the hell have I done? What have I, what have I done? Why have I committed my adult life to this? And is it too late for me to stop and try and do something different? The fact that I've, the last two years, uh, because of the Welsh language television and radio, have been, in a way, the two most successful years of, of my whole comedy being, has sort of kept me going. But, I mean, uh, um, if you... So, we're talking about the fear, right? And why we can't do other things. So, so, so the fact that I'm pursuing full-time comedy, that doesn't mean I'm doing a comedy gig every day. It means I get an awful lot of spare time. If I'm not careful, I can spend that time as a, as a couch potato thinking too much. Even if I use that time constructively and send emails and hassle people. I mean, that is a very difficult aspect of the job, mm. is to email people and quite politely and simply ask if you can get a gig. You try and telephone. People don't telephone so much these days. But that's a very good. So, okay, another conservative is to write jokes and then write and try and write. But then you think, you know what? This is going nowhere. I'll just have a cup of tea. I'll do blah, 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 blah. You end up worrying. You end up worrying. Am I wasting my time? So how am I supposed to try and pursue some other thing if I've decided I'm still taking this comedy thing seriously? The only way to pursue, first of all, arguably the only way I could pursue, let's say I wanted to enter politics or let's say I wanted to become a teacher, which I have the qualification. I could, really, it's difficult. to. It is possible to do the two things at the same time, and especially with teaching because you can do supply. But if I wanted another job totally, I should just cease the comedy because the only, you have to, by, by ceasing the comedy, you get rid of the misery of it, the pain of it. Okay, maybe do the odd gig in a blue moon in the future, but pursue this other. It's as if you need a, a clean slate. You have to go back into life. You have to face. You, I have. 
decided that I like the life of not having to wake up early every morning. I like the life of traveling to gigs and walking around the town in the daytime and going to the cinema before going to the gig. You know, what is that? You know, is that is that ambition? Does that sound like does that sound like ambition? No, it doesn't. So I don't have ambition. That's the problem, and that's the thing. It's highly subjective. What your experience of it sounds in many ways similar to mine, but at the sure. same time, you know, what is ambition? What is drive? How do you get it? If you've got it, then probably you know, the life of many comedians are all similar. But what they've got in their minds are all completely different. Mm. And um, I think I I haven't just pursued comedy because I like the lazy life. Far from it. I work hard in comedy over the years. I've done a lot of good things. And I think I never forget that I've got the ideas and the humour in my mind, which... I, I like to share with people over the years. And I think um, that um, it's, a sh- you know, at the same time, I always remember the television and the film comedians. And I think I'm a bit like a Billy Liar. You know, I fantasise that I'm up there with them and one day I will be. I can only make that happen by, by, by doing something about it. But how many times can you say to yourself, pull your finger up? Because that's the voice of your teachers when you're a kid. You know, what's, you know, what's going to happen? I don't know. Would you say, thank you, I really appreciate your honesty, I really do, I think this is, we, we are, I think we have a very similar approach, the, the trouble with the doubts and, and trying to It's a trouble with mortality as well, you know, it's very hard to say you're mortal and this is all going to end, you just think, oh, I'm still young-ish, you know, I'll carry on, I'll do, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, but the comedy world is a mindset and I suppose, linking back to what I was saying earlier, I've never fully been able to face it without feeling a fear. And it's not just fear of going on stage. It's the fear of, right, I've told myself I'm going to do comedy, therefore I must have ambition. Therefore I must aim to be on a quiz show, on a panel game show. I must aim to do auditions and be in front of people and get to know people. And um, there's something that's always stopped me from... Being fully comfortable with that. Do you think that comedy has done to you and for you the things that you expected it would when you first started out? No. When I first started out on the comedy circuit, as I say, I didn't know anything about the comedy circuit. I moved to London. I'd never heard... I'd heard of Mark Thomas and Kevin Day because I'd seen them on Saturday Night Live, which was hosted by Ben Elton. And I'd, I'd went to see Ben Elton live as well in Hammersmith Audio in 1989. But I'd never heard of, for example, Arthur Smith, Malcolm Hardy. I'd never heard of any of these uh, figures who uh, were famous at the time and remained famous. They were famous on the London circuit in the late 80s and a lot of them went on to achieve uh, greater uh, notoriety. Uh, So I was completely green or, if you saw my act, completely blue. But as blue... Oh, forget that. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, um, ah, right. So what was the question again? And um, do you think it's done for you what you thought it would over the course? You know, what right. are you expecting to get from right. it? And, uh, so when I first started doing comedy, for some reason, I had this assumption that everybody involved in the comedy world would be 
intelligent people. That was my, you know, I was 22 years old. That was my, those are the words in my head, whatever that means, however you define that. I thought people would be, most people, and virtually everybody I met were friendly. And, but, uh, but then I, I, I started to, uh, to, uh, mix with people in car shares and in clubs and you know for example one of my first open mics was the I, I was booked to do 10 minutes in one of my first ever open mic spots and the guy running the club on the night said to me uh, if you could keep it to five which you know which of course is you know comedians take a lot of shit Stuart you know we really do take a lot of shit and and I think I was living with an ideal image in my head of, you know, everybody who does live comedy is into the same type of comedy that I'd be into. They'd all be Python fans or they'd all like Spike Milligan and they'd all want to share ideas. And But, I mean, I was, you know, as I said to you, I mean, I... I, I I mean, I never had a girlfriend until I was, you know, 23. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I... I um, remember doing a gig, an open mic or something in Salford in 1989 and there was a, a black comedian on the bill and I remember talking to him off stage and saying, oh, what's it like being a black comedian? You know, and he, he was like, he said, you had to say that, didn't you? And I mean, I, 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 I didn't intend anything other than a conversation. It was like, uh, I suppose when you come from the sticks, you know, it's like, Suburbia is is a different kettle of fish, you know. It's a different. It's got different. It's 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 a different way of of living and communicating. And um, um, you know, I, has comedy made me happy? I think uh, that um, that it is. It's it's so many different things, you know. It's like. In my head, comedy is a series of memories of the years I spent, you know, going around, trying to get gigs, trying to get on with people, and then getting back to the wherever I was living and um, just thinking, you know, about what what it is and everything. And then, and then, comedy is a single joke. Comedy is just uh, an idea in your mind, and um, comedy is going to see a film and having a good time and 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 thinking, wow, that's brilliant, you know. And you do right. feel part of it, don't you? You know you're saying before about it being almost a, a vocation, it's a life commitment. Yeah. I, yeah. I certainly sort of find uh, comfort, if you like, and inspiration in the fact that I may not be one of the Pythons or have had anything like one of their careers, but I'm sort of in the same gang, whether they like it or not. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? By committing my life to comedy in the same way that lots yeah. of my heroes have. Yeah. I actually find that. Do you find the same? Do you sort of find, like you say, comedy is a, a moment or a moment in a film or something? Um, For me, I find that very comforting. I feel like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I belong to this community. Well, you're not much of an outsider, are you, Stuart? <laughs> but it's a community of outsiders, necessarily. Ah, well, that's the thing. I mean, the Pythons are very interesting, aren't they? Because they clearly, they clearly worked very hard to get where they got, and yet they're Oxford and Cambridge boys. So, so it's like. Okay, you know what's all this thing about? You know, the old boy network. They they utilised that. They must have done. But what they did was completely different to anything that had come before. Really, um, 
I don't know. I get, I don't know. I get jealous of everything. I just think, you know, um, I don't, I don't know if, uh, I never get a sense of achievement. I never think, you know, there's only a few times where I've, I think comedy is a, is a really weird uh, concept because it involves laughter and laughter suggests people getting on with each other and people is simple idea of cheering people up you know so but when you when you get out there into the world of comedians it's it's also i don't know it can be a bit vulgar sometimes but sort of just um the type of venues that you have to play and uh, the the vision that some promoters have of what a comedy night is, is like, it's awful, you know, but it's only awful to you, you know, because other comedians will go there, quite happily do it, and they'll still acknowledge that it's tough, and you think, well, you know, um, it's funny, I don't know, I don't know, I feel like I'm letting you down here, Stuart. Absolutely uh, not, absolutely not. This is, um, this is, this is fascinating, and it's very candid, and I appreciate that. And, I w- you know, yeah. I, I hope I'm not letting you down by pushing you no, into no, areas you weren't expecting. Let's no. let's come at it from an entirely different angle. Mm. What mm. what is the bit that you've written that you're most proud mm. of? The bit that I've written that I'm most proud of is oh, that's a very good question, and I should have put more thought into that before you arrived. Let's see now. Um, <clears throat> I mean. And you don't even you don't need to sort of tell us what it is and sort of you know no, risk I'd putting like it to. into scrutiny. I'd like to. I'd like to. Um, there's certainly a few jokes that I've come up with where where I thought, wow, you know, I mean, um, I used to be in a band called One Armed Leopard. The drummer went deaf, <laughs> and that joke was in my notebook for years before I used it. And then I I, I did it and. Um, I think that's a bloody good joke, that, you know. And yeah, that is a joke some people won't get. They won't yes, get yeah, it. Yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. You know? So it's like, well, you're left with this idea, well, is it a good joke? Because if, if some people don't get it, then it can't be a good joke, can it? But well, then you think, well, yeah, yeah, but then... You get the references and yes. it's a good joke. And uh, a lot of uh, people would argue that it's very important to have cultural references. But that is a limitation of verbal yes. humour, yes. you know. Universal humour, the only universal humour is, is physical or mime. And and I respect uh, that you know you know wholeheartedly, brilliant you know. But I mean, if you're going to do uh, you're going to do comedy in a language, then you are limited by what people uh, understand within that language. So it's good to then diversify and within you know the English language express things from around the world, and whether it's a band from the seventies or whether it's politics or mm. whatever, you know that is. The buzz that people get. I guess that's why topical humour is a genre in its own right. Because people get a buzz off. Oh, I've read the newspapers. I've seen the news. This guy's saying something. Or this woman's saying something which is referring to that in an abstract way. And I'm getting it. I'm getting it. It's like, a, it's like a, you know, it's some kind of um, almost like, um, you know, there's a mental process there. You know, there's a... Other routines, other routines which I am proud of, or jokes, or ideas which I am proud of. Let's see now. I um, I was walking down the street. No, well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I know that Tim Vine refers to one particular joke I did. Mm-hmm. And 
I remember doing the joke and I dropped it after a year or so thinking, yeah, it's okay, you know. And he cited that joke as an inspiration, which was really nice to hear. And the joke is, I met a man who was going bald. He was going bald! <laughs> bald! And I must say, when I heard Tim Vine quoting it, he did it far better than I ever did it. And he said, when he heard that joke in the middle of my set, he thought, here was the license to be daft, or he said something mm. like that. And I thought to myself, when I heard that, yeah, that's nice, that's nice, that's, that's really nice. The thing about it is, it's taking, it's not, it's, it's, it's again, it's complete wordplay, it's the double meaning on, on the word going. It's, it's, it's going as in saying. So, so, so what's nice about, a, you know, if I do a joke which involves wordplay, but, but you do it, I try and do it logically so it works as a conversation piece. So I used to be in a band called One Arm Leopard, the drummer went deaf. You know, you could you could take that as just something that happened. The drummer sure. went deaf, so we retrained him how to play the drums with the aid of vibrations through the stage. And it was all going swimmingly well until one night there was an earthquake during the gig and he took it as a cue for a drum solo. <laughs> and I think he's still there. <laughs> and that's the other problem. If you're going to do wordplay, you notice I said it went swimmingly well, but there was no joke about swimming. Yes, okay. So that's the problem when you do wordplay. I mean, it is... Oh, because what? Because the audience ends up listening to every word. Well, that's then... the fear. That's the fear. Oh, okay. And that's the curse of wordplay is you then have to be careful about around the joke. Every other word has to be chosen carefully because because it's a bit like, oh, you're going to do a joke with that. Well, what about that word there then? Come on. Another reason why I might do wordplay uh, is, uh, or that I have an affinity to it, is I do come from a bilingual background uh, where my parents spoke Welsh and English, obviously. Um, but they came, Welsh was their first language and technically mine, although I, you know, as most kids around here growing up, you watch so much television, it was all in English. You think Welsh language, it's sissy, don't want to speak that. But when I got older, I took it a bit more seriously. But what I'm saying is, it, it no doubt does have some effect on, on the brain and how you look at words. But then again, if you read certain psychology books, uh, wordplay is a symptom of schizophrenia. And uh, as is, um, if you take metaphors, um, there are cases of autistic people who hone in straight away on metaphors. So if I hear a metaphor in conversation... While everybody else is calmly receiving that and taking it for granted as if they've heard it a million times before, I will, I will always stand out to me. So, for example, I will get some of my jokes from listening to conversations where people have said things like, you know that buzz you get uh, when you're picked up by a flock of bees? <laughs> Sorry, I should have said swarm of bees. I, yeah. I get the birds and the bees mixed up sometimes. In fact, the first time I had sex, I had it with a pigeon <laughs> who had a sack of pollen tied to his leg. Ah! Um... You know, metaphors are a great form of um, of of a great source of humour. So, f so you know, and you'll hear it. You know, the the Gary Delaney's and the Tim Vines. I mean, one of Tim Vines' brilliant jokes is um, exit signs. They're on the way out. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they're on the way out is a sort of a metaphor, an idiom, and you know, it's just the whole thing about crisscrossing language. It's like uh, you, you've got two levels going on, and 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 I think it's the surprise of that effect that um, that 
you know, if you're a Freudian, you go, why are people laughing? And, you know, it's the release of tension. But in wordplay, it's the surprise. People, people, you know, it, it, it's, it's joy. It's, 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 it's a spirit of fun. And, and I think I try and build that and build that and build that. And then in the set, I will also try and bring another element, like maybe a bit of truth from inside, you know, about certain things. I mean, I, I, you know, I would, I would like to be able to, uh, I still haven't answered your question. Have I? <laughs> no, so, you have. Uh, okay, this is one of my favourite ones from recent times, which I'm very pleased with. Say, so, I was I was going to wear a poppy this evening, a poppy as a tribute to my brother because, well, heroin is his favourite drug. <laughs> but unfortunately, he nicked the poppy. <laughs> my brother, he was so desperate. You know, he he once went to Heroin Addicts Anonymous and they welcomed him with open arms. <laughs> So that was all in vain. It's not really funny, is it, to <laughs> make fun of a heroin addict, except it's quite funny Christmas time, because what we do, we put him in the living room and he pretends to be a Christmas tree and he just stands like that, you see. But it's very realistic, you see, because he leaves his needles on the carpet, <laughs> which is a brilliant touch, I think. <laughs> I mean, that's a nice little series of jokes, you know, because there's a jokes from all different years in sort of doing comedy, and I've just put them together. I, I mean, I think the the poppy line is an interesting joke because it's it's a basic wordplay. It's not a wordplay though, is it? it's poppy. Yeah, it's, it's poppy an idea play, isn't it? It's like yeah. a, another again. It's an allusion to something, mm. an association. Poppies are not just associated with war veterans and people who died in the war, but it's also associated with with heroin. You know, poppies in Afghanistan. I believe that is the mm-hmm. plant. Right. Yeah. So so the joke makes sense. And yet, that joke can piss people off. And I did a gig recently where someone came up to me and said, uh, she was actually wondering what happens if if a joke goes down badly because her friends heard the poppy joke and were immediately upset by it. I'm thinking... Why are you upset by that? I know why you're upset by it, because you think I've just said something disrespectful mm-hmm. about war veterans. But actually, I haven't. I've just, mm. I've just told you why, why I was going to wear a poppy, because it, I think of my brother, because he was a heroin addict. Mm. You know, of course it's a joke. This is why I hate these, 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 these systems, these censors, who will stop you telling a joke because... They think you've just said something. You know, they'll stop certain types of humour because you've just said something. They'll hear, a, they'll hear yeah. a word that's like a red flag, and they'll go, "We can't have that." Well, what they? Yeah, you can't have that. But what they're doing is, they're they're taking the the meaning, the other meaning of the joke, which I never mentioned, and they're saying you can't say that. Well, I never said it. That's that's that is the wonder of comedy of of humour. Of of the the is a is a brilliant. Uh, you can see why people have been able to um, attack, you know, uh, authority by using humour, especially in times of oppression and in dictatorships like in Russia, you know, and and Poland. You had these brilliant satirists, and they would probably have to write even cleverer stuff because you would not be able to even hint yes, at. Yes. Yes. And um, and so you can see why double meanings can evolve according to the environment you're in then. So uh, so anyway, the poppy joke. Then you have the follow-on with the uh, heroin addicts anonymous and that was all in vain and, you know, and um, yeah, so I was very pleased with that. And also, I did a gig 
Uh, I was very proud of a gig I did last year in the Glee Club. It was for a uh, Welsh language television series. I mean, Welsh language television have never taken many risks with comedy. Mm -hmm. Most of the comedians they've had over the last 20 years have been, you know, I'm not saying they're bad comedians, but they've been from, you know, the farming country community. So they do jokes, very long build-up, shaggy dog stories, which end up with an innuendo, a sexual innuendo, a lot of the time, and that's okay in its place. But, I mean, uh, there are lots of people in Wales who learn Welsh in school, but never speak it once they leave school. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of those people have no respect for Welsh language institutions because they it's they strike them as boring. It's old fashioned, old hat. And yet you talk to these people, and they will remember the odd pop singer or rock singer from Welsh language culture. In the same way, if you can get stand up comedy, yeah, more, you know, contemporary, it might bring people in. So this TV series was called Gwerthiathan, uh, which literally means selling out and it was put in the glee club proper comedy venue and i got to do two 12 minute sets in welsh and what i felt was first of all i was paid well for it probably the best fee i've ever had for any gig whether it's live or television and um that was a nice feeling and therefore it i felt more committed to it to create not just translate stuff from English, which I had done over the years. But the more gigs I got in Welsh and the more I spoke it with friends, the more I realised I could start creating stuff originally in Welsh. And it is a slightly different feeling in a different language, even though it, it's also wordplay. And then I created and crafted these two 12-minute sets. And part of me felt, once I'd finished that and it looked, it came across well and it looked good on the screen... I felt that that was actually the that was the final harvest and result of I'm not wording this very well but after I'd crafted that those two 12 minute sets I felt after after 20 25 years of pursuing comedy I felt that I'd put everything I'd learnt into that because I'd learnt everything doing it in English and then at the final stage I'd switched the language so I'd put another part of myself which is, you know, from my heart into it to as a as a cherry on the on the top of it. So so that was a lovely creation and it was an artistic thing and it was you know I felt that a lot of the jokes, you know, were 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 similar to the stuff I do in English, but it was, it's like when you do it in, in, yeah, it was just, it was just, uh, it was just an identity thing that came, came through with it, you know, which is, which is um, funny because you, you try and pursue a, a gig in front of any audience and you, depending on what you're trying to do on stage, I try and come across as somebody who wants to be liked. I know it's, that sounds contrary if if you look at me and you think of me as an outsider, but I actually would like to be liked. And when it works that way, you know, it, it, it goes down so much better. Other times the audience perceive you as an outsider, therefore there's a clinical element to it. But if I do it in my own uh, native language, 
and I can do it fluently. It's this sense of like you're back in school where everybody knew your name. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's Noel. All right, Noel. Yeah. And uh, therefore, you are able to open up. There is certain truths that come out in a different way then from your heart. I suppose my goal would be to be able to 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 duplicate that. You know, going around in Britain, doing it in English, pursuing maybe fringe festivals in Australia, maybe go to Canada and stuff, and and um, try and get that basic connection with people, not just deliver the jokes. You yeah. know. Um, it's really hard to put into words. I think, um, you know, it's such it's, it's really tough. You know, it's funny, the longer you do comedy, the more you, the more you you see there's to to learn in a sense about it. You know, and but what you've got to learn is how to how to be simple about it. You know, what advice would you give, or what was some good advice you got given, or what would you, what would yeah. you give to newer actors? There's a lot of newer actors listening to this. What uh, what would be the one message that you wanted to pass on well i'd like to say never give up but the thing is i'd sound more credible saying that if i'd achieved mega stardom (laughs) (laughs) once i've achieved mega stardom i'd say listen folks no no do you know what if you've achieved mega stardom it's easy to say never give up yeah it's that's a better message if you have achieved micro stardom (laughs) so my my uh Okay, so my message, which is uh, slightly adjusted, is never give up because I'm just going to kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) And you can carry on the good work without me. Um, I think that's a really good question. I've been told certain things in my time. I I I would not go up to a comedian and offer them advice ever unless it was mutually agreed or they asked me for the advice. I've think a lot of uh, people, upcoming new comedians, will probably get quite hurt by, by um, you know, older, more experienced comedians just freely giving their opinions. I am guilty of that myself, and if you're listening to this and I've once done that to you in an unsolicited fashion, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would say try and be aware of um, people's feelings, you know, I mean, we've discussed today, even certain words can hurt feelings. Try and be aware of, um, you know, where you are. If you're doing a gig and you're talking about the London tube system, just look around you, you know. If you're in Inverness at the time, you know, just realise there are different people, different types of people with with uh, with different cultures and groups and, and not all of them deserve to be picked on. Um, in fact... To quote Eric Sykes, um, the hardest comedy is is the type that that sends yourself up. And although it's very difficult to achieve that, it is actually a very great thing to be able to somehow send yourself up, but not belittle yourself. You know, you make yourself the butt of the humour rather than other people. It's it's a hard one. Um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of comedians approach it. Um, you know, I mean, Woody Allen for me is, is a, is a great stand-up comedian. His stuff from the sixties, very well written, manages to make himself look ridiculous and yet a hero at the same time. So, you know, it's all in the writing. It's all in the delivery, the delivery, 
is is very important. Uh, Economise. Don't put wastage. Cut all the unnecessary words out. Because even if you if you're not a comedian who does wordplay, you're a comedian who uh, does so-called observational routines or satirical. You know, even there, you're using words, and too many words are a distraction. Cut to the chase, you know, to the the guts of 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 the funny bit. Mm. Thanks, Noel. So thanks to Noel. Uh, thank you to to Noel for coming on the show. I really appreciate him being on there. As I say, see him live, watch him on YouTube. He is bringing something genuinely unique and different, and he's exactly the sort of person that I want to have on this show. He's exactly the sort of creative mind I like talking to and trying to investigate and interrogate a bit. And he is exactly the kind of unsung hero of the circuit that I would like to champion whilst also getting all your famous people on that you've seen on TV and bought their DVDs. Uh, I think he's brilliant. Thank you, Noel, for coming on the show. Thank you to Olivia Phipps for Podmin this week. This episode was uh, co-produced by the lovely Nathan Wood. Um, Very, very kind of him to help me out. Dan Melrose did the music. Toby Rose has been helping me out uh, on the, the... uh, what's the website front? Oh, that wasn't very good, was it? I'll I'll leave it in. Um, and also, uh, uh, recently, uh, I've had some nice uh, flash animation adverts done on my site, stuartgoldsmith.co.uk, and also on comedianscomedian.com. Those were both done by my brother, Robert Goldsmith. So you can uh, you can tender work to him at uh, robert-goldsmith.com. Next week, it's John Hastings, so go and see his Edinburgh show as well. He is superb. Um, sorry, I'm just basically recovering from having been living in a camp van at a festival for three or four days. Brilliant though it was. I'm up to Edinburgh in a week. Uh, so John Hastings next episode, and then after that, they might get a little bit sporadic. I'm not quite sure how we're going to do it. That's everything. I'm knackered. I'm going to go do a preview. Bye. Bye. <laughs>